The Federal Employees Health Benefits Program has a problem. Its overseer, the Office of Personnel Management, doesn't have a reliable way of knowing whether plan holders' family members are actually eligible. The Government Accountability Office estimates insurers might be paying out a billion dollars a year on ineligible members. We get more now from the director of the GAO's Forensic Audits and Investigative Service, Seto Bagdoyan. Seto, good to have you back. Uh, Thanks, Tom. Good morning. So this is a surprise, this particular problem. You would assume that people just sign up family members that are eligible. What did you study and what did you find here? Let's get the top line numbers. Setting the context for this program, it covers a little over 8 million people at an annual cost of almost $60 billion. So it's a substantial program. And Senator Rick Scott of Florida asked us to look into this program. Based on his experience while he was governor, he uh, initiated an eligibility audit for the Florida equivalent of FEHB. So that was the impetus for our work. And when you say $60 billion, is that the payouts from insurers or is that the premiums paid by federal employees? That is the premium cost, right? So it roughly comes out to six, $7,000 per covered individual, uh, if my math is correct. Right. And the implication then is that premiums are driven by what the program costs. So the, if correct, payouts right. are happening... So, to cover health care for ineligible people, that's driving that's right. premiums up for everyone. That's correct, yes. So if you have ineligible people racking up claims costs, those are eventually rolled into future premiums. So you're absolutely correct. So what is the fraud risk here? What's happening or potentially happening? Yeah, great question. Nobody has really looked at it systematically at OPM. Their initial fraud risk assessment from 2020 did not address enrollee eligibility as a potential risk. So OPM doesn't know. And you mentioned the estimate of about a billion dollars a year in lost money, essentially, is actually an extrapolation by OPM based on private industry data. So it's not a systematic look as to how bad the problem might be. just want to make that perfectly clear. Sure. We did not independently corroborate that number. And do we know what the mechanism is? Do people enroll their dogs and give it a name? Or do they enroll third cousins? Or what's going on, do we think? A couple of examples for you that we did flag from closed cases. There was a federal employee who kept his purported wife and stepchild on the rolls for about 12 years, and FEHB ended up paying out over $100,000 in claims. And there was another instance where an employee kept his ex-spouse following their divorce for 14 years, and that cost the government over $150,000. So, you know, it's possible that these are real people, but they're not eligible. Now, whether they disguise their dogs as eligible people, that's up for discussion. But there is often just real people who are not eligible being joined into this program. And in, say, a state or in the private sector, I mean, who is the burden upon to make sure that people are eligible? Would it be OPM in this case or would it be the insurers? When we did interview a number of insurers, including the biggest one that has over 60% of market share, they basically told us that once someone comes to them, they assume that someone else, either OPM and or the employing agency, has vetted these people. So when they show up at the doorstep with a claim, the insurance carrier assumes that this individual or family is eligible. 
So everyone's assuming everyone else has verified those right. names. Yeah, it is a complex system, as you can imagine. There's OPM, there's the employing agency, there's the carrier, and then the fourth level, of course, is the actual healthcare provider. So it's very convoluted, but everybody seems to be pointing fingers at everybody else. We're speaking with Seto Bagdoyan. He's director of the Forensic Audits and Investigative Service at the Government Accountability Office. All right, then. OPM is now aware. What can they do about it? What did you recommend? Is there a mechanism that could work here? Sure. We made four recommendations to OPM. They generally agreed with them. First, we said, you got to figure out a system to ensure that employing agencies are following your most recent guidance, which is steps in the right direction, but they are forward-looking. So OPM said, yeah, we're doing a few things. We might think about implementing this recommendation. We'll get back to you. We also made other recommendations like doing uh, essentially an eligibility audit, which would be a retrospective look to see how many people OPM is carrying now that are not eligible and figure out basically who these people are and take steps to remove them. We also recommended that OPM conduct a thorough fraud risk assessment that would include eligibility as one of the potential key risks. And then in building out towards a more comprehensive anti-fraud strategy, document their assessment and create what we call a fraud risk profile, which is essentially the DNA of individual risks. What's it about? Where does it fall in priority and those kinds of things? So that eventually will feed into their fraud risk management decision making. Well, if someone has a spouse and they get divorced and that person is no longer eligible, how would the government know that or how would a carrier know that? Well, nominally, the expectation is that that individual would report that event, that qualifying life event, if you will, to their employer at a minimum. And then the system would take over from there to drop coverage at some point date certain. Like when my son turned 21, I believe, he lost his dental coverage because that's when it expired. That was covered by me. So we had to go back and buy him his own coverage. But that was through the letter process and so on that involved my employer and the carrier. So if that doesn't happen, the person is not ethical enough to do that, then you have this situation where Nobody knows, and it's business as usual. Because in some cases, say you are a federal employee and you have a child and you Mm. register that child that year, and that's verifiable. I mean, there are vital records, and there is what is entered in their personnel record, and then you can automatically know, well, hey, that person was born 21 years ago. Guess what? But a divorce or an ex-spouse, that type of thing, it's hard to verify. So there are some data elements that exist that machines could find this. Others, they don't. Yeah. So an assessment process would flag those types of concerns. And through the strategy process, aspirationally, at least, you would establish front-loaded controls that would catch those types of instances. Because I guess divorces are also matters of public record in the courts. Right, exactly. So how much digging does one want to do in this case to verify that event? But if they're not aware of it at all, then they have nothing to go by. Because over at the whole apparatus now at the Defense Department, which used to be at OPM for background investigations for security clearance, they do have this at least nascent continuous 
vetting process where there are public records and private data sources commercially available that are checked automatically by machine about people to know if they're in debt and so forth. I wonder if that same type of mechanism could apply for eligibility in this case. Potentially, of course, you know, it's going to be a cost and outcome trade-off. But yeah, having gone through that security clearance update fairly recently, I'm aware of the things that you sign that allow the government to check a whole bunch of things that you didn't even know existed. So that might be a way, but they have to do an assessment first to see where do they spend their money most effectively. Right. And just putting on my imagination hat, if everyone was charged $2 a year on their premium for fraud detection programs, then the program would take in $18 million a year. You can run a pretty good forensics program for that kind of money. Yeah, you might be onto something there, Tom. Yeah, you might get a cut out of it too for suggesting it. (laughs) All right. Well, I'll take it. So at this point, though, OPM is it. With respect to your report, the, the balls in That's their court. right. They were the impacted agency because they oversee the program and the recommendations were directed at the director. As I said, they concurred generally. Of course, proofs in the pudding as to how they implement it. We'll monitor this over time. We usually give agencies some grace period. Some of them take several years to get there. Others act quickly because of reputational concerns and other things or They do take fraud risk and fraud risk management seriously, and they act in a timely manner. So we're hopeful OPM will take the right steps, but uh, we'll definitely keep their feet to the fire. Seto Bagdoyan is director of the Forensic Audits and Investigative Service at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Palmer. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive podcast edition wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost... uh... Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, you know, and I obviously will say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but, uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And, um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see, you know, throw, uh, send in my information and lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and, um, I learned 
uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused uh has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of i i you know so often when he'll walk away i'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out and come on you know like look at look at terrell like he he, he faces everything with optimism and 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 i've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the united states and globally you see people who have had everything stacked against them you know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yep. everyone is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot but you go to special olympics and everyone's involved everyone's welcome everyone's equal and I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get? How can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved, uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks 
that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.